listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 R. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Today you're listening to the Breakfasters podcasts for the week, the 29th of April to the 3rd of April. Jeff is away in Sydney at the mm. moment, so he's not here. You've been here every day this week. I've been here every day this week. You're as- the only one of the team that has been here every day this week. <laughs> it's been a good week. So good on you. Thanks, I, was, mate. I was sick for a couple of days. Uh, but let's start with Jeff had a um, – our beloved Jeff Sparrow had a big announcement uh, at the start of the week. So we'll kick off with that. Also, we got to chat to um, Mish Gregor, who is part of the show The Temple, which is playing at the Malt House Theatre. And also, uh, I had an interesting story about a, a bad interaction that I had with a fan uh, that actually turned Good. Yes, very interesting story. Uh, we also had Becca Economo. Sorry, Becca Economopolis. I'm sorry for pronouncing that wrong. It was I had it written out you phonetically, and you nailed it. And I like nailed it. Air. Yeah, I did. I nailed it before. But she came in because uh, she was doing a keynote at the Art and Climate Change Festival in Melbourne, and we had a really interesting conversation with her about um, climate change and climate change action. And all the things that come with that. And we also talked about stealing stuff from hotels. Apparently, Jeff Sparrow has uh, got a little bit hot hands in the past. Well, he likes a, likes a face washer, he does. <laughs> but we also talked about the other stuff that people steal. Lots of our listeners, apparently, also hot hands. Uh, and, Jez, you told us a story about uh, the time that you got very, very, very sick. and your Not mom, enough sympathy. But your mum didn't believe you. No. Three, triple, ah. You are listening to Breakfasters. Uh, Jeff Sparrow. Mm, Geraldine Hickey. Here we are. Here we all are. Sarah Smith. Geraldine, here as well. Geraldine Hickey. Jeff Sparrow. <laughs> Jeff Sparrow. Is there something... Is there some news you'd like to share with us? It's not at all. Yeah, so uh, when we were doing the media segment, I was talking about the Christchurch um, massacre. I I think I told you guys I'm doing a book on that now. I told told you that, didn't I? Yes. Yes. So I've got a deadline. Don't know if you told our listeners, but you told us. I just did. We know all about it. Yeah, and I'm also supposed to be doing this project about climate change that I'm struggling with a bit at the moment. So I've been struggling a bit with the early hours here. I don't know how you manage it, Geraldine. I was thinking about that today, about you um, flying over all the way from Perth mm. and still doing the show. Can you see her face? I don't know that she's <laughs> managing today. No, well, <laughs> today I am in struggle town. But other days, I'm just very good at, you're very good at writing and I'm very good at napping. Oh, so well, you're that's good at how I survive. As well. but, um, uh, and also been, as probably listeners know, I'm also in a long distance relationship. So that's been a little bit of an issue for me, which is why. Unfortunately, I've decided I'm going to quit doing Breakfasters. So, I mean, this is something we, we've been talking about for a while. So, yes. it's a bit yeah. weird discussing it with you guys because we've discussed <laughs> we've it been talking about for, for a long, long time. time. But, yeah. uh, but it is time to let time to let the listeners know. It's kind of it is quite sad because you know it's one of the best jobs I've ever had, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So. Um, and I know that I'm going to miss it a great deal. But and we know that you will as well. And we also know that it's, um, you know, it's certainly not an easy decision that you come to to, to do this because it is such a wonderful job. But there is there, there is a time where you do have to make that decision. And, and I think, you know, all, you know, we have nothing but love for oh. you. So, yeah. you know, it's, um, yes, we will miss you. Um, but I also think it's, you know, you are making the right decision. Yeah, well, I feel like, you know, all good things have to come to an end. And three and a half years is a – three and a half years we've been doing this and it's like yeah. it's a pretty decent kind of run. And also, like, so I sort of feel like it's the right decision for me to make. But also it's kind of good to, you know, everything has a time limit. It's kind of good to, to yeah. keep these things changing, give someone else a go. And yeah. um, plus I want to sleep in. So. Yeah. <laughs> I know. To be fair <laughs> – so this is, like you said, this is something, like, we obviously we talk about stuff stuff all the time. Mm. This is something we've talked about, like, a lot with Jeff, and it's been so um, lovely. Even you surviving to May of this year has been pretty good because, you know, yeah. you know, you've, like... Oh, but, yeah. It's, and, it's, you know, it's one of those things, we sort of think about it a lot because it's kind of like, it's such a good, this station is such a great place to work, as mm, you guys yeah. kind of know, and... I mean, it's real. It's been a real privilege to be part of something as iconic, not only as Triple R, but as this show. I know, you know what I mean? Right? Like Breakfast is like a Melbourne thing that every. Um, yeah. So it's been so great, but you know, 
I don't know. There's nothing. Also, nothing worse than feeling like you've sort of outstayed your, your time. You know what I mean? Like so. Well, you definitely haven't outstayed your work. <laughs> I've got another. I've got another two weeks. No <laughs> give, me, give me time. No one's pushing you out the door, but yeah. it has been bloody wonderful. Like I think that well, you think about how long ago it was when we first met. And yes. did a little filling breakfasts together. That was four years ago. And I would never have um, imagined that we would have survived three and a half years <laughs> three together. Three most unlikely yeah. people. Yeah. To be fair, you couldn't get three more different people, but um, we all love each other very much and it's been such a yeah. bloody fun ride. Now, I know a lot of people are sending in, in text messages at the moment. There's a lot of love Same. coming in. Finally, um, at last. Yes. <laughs> We're waiting <laughs> three and a half years for this moment. He's out. <laughs> now, I'm sure plenty of people will want to farewell you, so... Can they? Can they? No. Yes, they can. Yes, they can. <laughs> yes, they can. This uh, is Jeff's favourite bit. Oh, yeah. So We're going to do... Yes, we're going to do an outside broadcast on May the 10th from the Northcote Social Club. Put it in your diaries, everybody. May 10th. We're having a big celebration. Sure. Mm. Uh, we're calling it a hug off. <laughs> yeah. Because Jeff has said that he's happy to hug all the listeners yep. that come on that day to and farewell get photos in. with everybody as well. Sure, we'll do all of that. <laughs> anyway, you know, you should come over. It's been one, I mean, like the. Doing the show, you know, it's been great working with you guys. But you also sort of get a relationship with all the listeners as well. You, you know, sure there's regular yeah. people who phone in. So it'd be mm. nice if some of them would come along on them. On I'm sh- sure lots of people come along. Sure, yeah. we'll keep records of who comes and who doesn't come. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just start reading out the names of those people that don't come as well. Um, I suppose it's the flip side to this news is that... Yes. Um, we are lucky enough to have someone who's going to step in for Jeff. And who might that someone and be? And who might that someone be? That someone might be Daniel Burt, who you might, uh, rem- listeners would know from, he's been kind of volunteering at the station for a number of years now. Over the summer, he did the Crossbenchers show with EBL. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did breakfasts with yes, us. Yes, I, I did summer breakfasts with him at one stage. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. And a few he, years yeah. ago. Nice man. Filled in for you while you were away at Adelaide Writers mm. Festival as yeah. well, um, and like Daniel's got a great history. Like he's a comedy writer for Hard Quiz and the Weekly in the Project, um, and has done heaps of stuff. You might know him. He's written for The Age and SMH as well. He's just a really great uh, human yeah. being as well. And I feel you know it's really nice that it's you know it's so sad. It's so strange that when a team. Someone has to step off from a team, but it's a really lovely thing to have him be able to step, step in. in. Yeah, yeah. No, he'll do a fantastic job. And he's mm, going to come absolutely. to your OB, actually, because um, we invited him along so that you could give him, like, a little uh, advice for for doing this job. Oh, I've got plenty of advice. <laughs> <laughs> there's official advice and there's unofficial advice. So that he can know what he's in for working with us. Um, so, oh. anyway, I mean, it is sad news. I'm going to miss you guys a lot, but um, we've got another two weeks, so. Live it up. Three... Ah. The Temple is a new play that's on at the Malthouse running from the 3rd to the 26th of May. To tell us all about it, we're joined by one of its creators and stars, Mish Gregor. Thanks so much for coming in. Hello, thank you for having me. Now, this is a work created by Gavin Quinn from the Irish company Pan Pan, alongside a whole bunch of local talent riffing off an Oscar Wilde play. Explain how that all works. Uh, yeah, well, uh, basically Gavin, who has been running a company in Ireland for about 20 years, came to us, came to the Malt House and wanted to work with some theatre makers, basing a kind of process on the importance of being earnest because Oscar Wilde used to write plays just by like writing down heaps of funny jokes and then throwing them together into a random plot, just whatever worked to fit the jokes in. And so he thought, he wondered if he could make that kind of process work with a bunch of Australian artists. So what did that mean in practice? You came in together and started thinking up jokes and then put that together to... Yeah, it was really (laughs) weird, to be honest. Basically, it involved a lot of, like, us sitting around a table and Gavin putting his phone down and saying, now just talk about something. And with no context. (laughs) Yeah. So it was very, like... And we weren't, like, making jokes in the way that, you know, I guess, like, a writing room would have, like, a plot or or, you know, like, a starting point. It was really just, like... He was interested in the same way that Oscar Wilde was in people having conversations that ended up being funny, sort of like witty retorts Uh. and strange comments, but no storyline or anything at first. So we just sort of started 
talking and being really stupid to each other. We all made up character names. We were like, uh, what's your name? Like the, the worst start to an improvisation oh. ever. Like, what's your name? <laughs> but then we all went around the table and just made up stupid names. My name in the show is Jackie because I think that's a beautiful name. And then oh, it was like, what do you do? It was like a weird like first date for four artists who've never worked together before talking about something that they – it was like a really awkward party or something like that. But we just recorded and recorded and recorded and Gavin would take it away and just get it transcribed and then take out the lines that he liked and slowly started sort of sculpting oh, a, a wow. play out of it. Oh. Oh. How and long that, did that process take? How long? Like how many days were you sitting around that table? Or was three it just weeks. One? Amazing. Yeah. How, and how long were you talk? Would you talk? For? Were there, hours were there, and really? hours. Yeah. And then it's sort of like storylines would start to emerge. So you'd be like, oh yeah, like I had this idea that I could work in a fish and chip shop because I thought. You know, there's a Jackie. lot to explore. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. Bottomless, bottomless, like the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> but then, like the next day, he would. Some, the director would say, "Now, just the whole fish and chip thing. Just drop it. Just drop it." And you'd be oh. like, "Oh, but yesterday we had this whole backstory about, you know, I was dating this person that I met in the fish and chip shop." And he's like, "No, that's that's gone now. That's <gasps> gone now." Oh, so, it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was like. But then you had to keep. So all the stories sort of didn't make keep it sense. Fresh. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Well, you're riffing um, when you're doing this with an all-star cast. So who, who's in it and where might people might know the actors from? Well, Ash Flanders from Sisters Grimm is in it. And we actually we have um, Genevieve Dufresne, who is also works a lot with Sisters Grimm, is in it, but she wasn't part of that process. So okay. Nicola Gunn wrote it with us, so people might know her work. Um, she works a lot, like, in dance and theatre. And um, also Algina Bella, who is... An, an actual actor. He's just recently been in Aladdin, like the oh. Disney oh, Aladdin. Like, yes. so he's quite skilled at like the character work. And, the, yeah, yeah, the musical. Oh, so he that. can sing. He can do all kinds of like actual technical things that actors <laughs> should be able to do. <laughs> um, and also Marcus McKenzie, who's worked a lot in sort of indie theatre productions around Melbourne. Yeah, and we'd never worked together as a group before, and we sort of didn't really know each other either. So it was a really weird way to enter a room but yeah quite uh, experimental in a sort of strange way even though it wasn't like rolling around on the ground screaming our mother's name or anything like that although that did come up at a certain point for Jackie <laughs> uh, yeah but it was quite unusual for me anyway as an artist so are there recognizable elements of the importance of being earnest in it or was that just a sort of starting point it was definitely just a starting point there are a few um like there are recognisable points for us. Like we, there's, in the importance of being earnest, they put a baby into a handbag. Like it's just ridiculous. Like it doesn't make sense. Like someone leaves their baby in a handbag at a train station and this person gets separated from his brother at birth. Um, you know, classic, the tale is all as time. So we have a baby in our show in a handbag. But I don't think anyone would A, recognise the reference or B, like even remember that if if they were familiar with the importance of being earnest because mm. it's sort of like a random fact. But there's sort of little things. Also in the importance of being earnest, a lot of the characters, because it's kind of like a moral, like one of those like, you know, upper class people meet lower class people. They judge each other. So there's a lot of like us as characters trying to to invent like our moral structure or trying to be judgmental or trying to st- say just start sentences with like I always say and then have like a, a thing that defines us. But they're really hopeless and weak and it just makes our characters look like pathetic (laughs) like we're trying to define something that we can't define yeah and so it came together as like a linear story what what people are watching yeah it's sort of like a sort of fragmented story so basically it's about like a group of people who come together who try who are trying to make themselves better humans and it's sort of like it's like is it a is it a cult is it a like digital detox camp is it you know it's like a bit mysterious as to why they're there and who is actually in charge. They kind of just, mm-hmm. it's like they've gone to camp and no one's showed up to be the leader and so they sort of have to take it upon themselves to try and teach each other, but they're all really bad people, so it doesn't really work out. And when you're doing a process like this and you've got all of these uh, people coming from different backgrounds, they're all super talented, is it kind of hard to juggle between people's creative impulses, even egos? Do you have people sort of saying, I want to go this direction, I want to go that direction? No, we had no problems at all. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, yeah, of course, we're all really different. I mean, that's kind of, I guess... (laughs) 
the, the direct, I mean, we kind of had to have a, like, we had this um, tribunal, we called it at one point, where we, Gavin, who, you know, being, like, because he works in a sort of, we're all makers, we all make our own work, we're all used to being in charge. And we had this tribunal where he was like, I'm a director. My, the kind of the way it works in theatre is the director has the final say, are you guys okay with that? If we mm. kind of go into proper rehearsals, that there will be stuff that you'll be like, I don't think that's the right answer, but otherwise there's just going to be too many of, because he's like, you all have really strong ideas and they're all so different. And I was like, for me, I think that's really exciting just to be like, I can put it forward, but it doesn't always, I don't always get what I want and I have to sort of work out how to still sell it or still be in that bit of the show, um, even though I wouldn't have done it that exact way. Yeah. What was the process that brought Pan Pan over here um, in the first place, did they come specifically to work with the Malthouse or how did this all come about? Yeah, well, they've um, toured a bit to Australia before. So they've done like Melbourne Festival, Sydney Festival, Adelaide Festival. And I guess like they sort of started talking to the Malthouse artistically and talking about how like when you tour to a, a different country, you know, you just have this kind of like fly in, do your show, fly out. It's not much of an exchange. And so I, I, Gavin always says that he started talking to Malthouse about nine years ago. And that's when they sort of started and thinking about like, how can they work in the right way that would involve like a real kind of like, you know, like a real, I don't know, exchange is like such a cliche Mm. word, but a real like conversation, artistic conversation between his practice in Ireland and what they're doing in Melbourne at the Mole House or around town. So this is a world premiere, hasn't opened yet, but are there plans to take it elsewhere or is it just a sort of one-off thing happening in Melbourne? Well, everyone's like, yeah, we'll see how good it is, won't we? If it's good. <laughs> if it's good, people might be interested. But if it's a, if it's a complete like clangor, I don't think anyone no. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How's it looking at the moment? Which way is it going? Oh, fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, offers are about to start rolling in. <laughs> All right, well, people want to judge for themselves. It's not at the Malt House, running from the third to the twenty sixth of May. It's called the Temple. We've been talking to one of its creators and stars, Mish Gregor. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me, guys. The Art and Climate Equals Change Festival is a huge festival of socially engaged ideas, exhibitions and events running until the 19th of May. Tonight, however, at Deacon Edge in Fed Square, there's a lecture entitled Slaying the Zombie Myth of Institutional Neutrality. The person giving it is the artist and activist Becca Economopoulos. She's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Hey, Jeff. You're a founder of the art collective Not an Alternative. What is that? That's right. We're a collective of artists, activists, and scholars that formed back in 2003. Um, So we work on pressing contemporary issues through a cultural lens. Um, For many years, we were working on housing, homelessness, gentrification, um, and more recently engaging with climate and environmental justice. Okay, one of your projects, which I guess is framing this discussion, is the Natural History Museum, an institution that says it makes a point to include and highlight the social and political forces that shape nature. Can you explain that? You're running your own museum. Yeah, we started a mobile and pop-up natural history museum as a sort of Trojan horse strategy to get inside the museum sector and change it from within. So what? how does one send a Trojan horse inside <laughs> a museum? It turns out it's quite easy. There's all kinds of crazy museums out there. So we um, <laughs> put our first grant uh, towards all the material infrastructure to make us believable as a museum. We got a uh, junker of an airport shuttle bus that we wrapped to look like a natural history museum. We bought um, all this uh, tent Fitting pipe fittings and uh, tent canvas so we could create an institution within any institution or out in the field. Okay, so if you smuggle this inside one of the big fancy institutions, what happens when people go in? Now, what, what, what does the, how does the Trojan horse release its Trojans, so well, to speak? Well, our <laughs> exhibitions deal with environmental and climate justice issues. They connect history to the present, give us coordinates ideally to shape the future for the common good. Um, when we first started, we teamed up with hundreds of scientists around the world to release a letter urging science and natural history museums to cut ties to fossil fuel interests. 
Um, and that has been one of the guiding stars of our work is um, as uh, climate deniers and fossil fuel olig- oligarchs sponsor our cultural institutions, perhaps there's a chilling effect or self-censorship that happens where they're not really talking about the full range of causes, impacts, and solutions to climate change. I think people would be surprised to hear that they do sponsor those kinds of institutions. Is this really common in America? It is common and in other countries as well. Um, I think that, uh, and here in Australia. Yeah, right. Right? Um, But, uh, you know, we were met with some success. I think it kicked off some sector-wide soul-searching, and in the last few years, nine museums in the United States have either dropped a fossil fuel sponsor or divested from fossil fuels. We got David Koch, one of the top financiers of climate denial in the United States, off the board of New York's American Museum of Natural History. And we did this not by shaking a fist from the outside, but rather joining the sector as a peer institution, going to all the conventions, organizing panels, um, joining uh, professional associations, and building relationships to understand who are our allies on the inside. And, and museums are full of them, full of good people. Right? So how do you find funding then, or, or how do you kind of step outside of capitalism and find funding or sponsorship for institutions like this when um, other sources are removed? Well, you know, that was one of the main pushbacks that we got from institutions were like, you know, we're strapped for cash and this isn't really affecting our programming, um, which, you know, is is debatable. And um, our position is, you know, if they, they keep saying we can't do what you're saying because we're neutral. As if there were such a thing as neutrality. Um, And uh, if if you take positions and advocate on behalf of the communities that are leading environmental justice struggles and on behalf of our children and their future, then you unlock all kinds of funding streams that weren't available to you before when you were um, a pure neutral institution. Would you extend this argument to other issues as well? I mean, I know it's there's been a controversy in recent years in Australia about institutions that were involved indirectly with the refugee detention industry, that various superannuation funds had connection with offshore detention and there was a campaign to get them um, disinvested. There's all sorts of big companies that are involved in all sorts of evil practices. Would you extend the argument beyond climate change to those things as well? Yeah. Yeah, and we join a lot of peer collectives and um, artist-led groups and activist-led groups around the world that are calling on their museums and cultural institutions, not just to cut ties to fossil fuel interests, but uh, arms manufacturers or, um, you know, the prison industry and so on. Um, in, in kind of networking or related efforts, we've been calling it the Museum Liberation Movement. <laughs> These institutions are surprisingly influential. In the United States alone, they see more visitors annually than sporting events and theme parks combined. They're a top three family destination. And in a time of extreme mistrust in institutions, the polls show that consistently that they're among the most trusted sources of information in society. So they have a really important role to play. The Australian government, like the American government, is... Uh, playing a fairly destructive role in the debates around climate change. Would you extend the argument to government funding as well? Yeah. <laughs> Let's keep going. No, I mean, we need an ethical we need an ethical politics. We need an ethical culture that is thinking not just about the bottom line, but about our collective future because it is at risk. The fossil fuel industry is driving this train off the cliff. And uh, Howard Zinn, famous historian, said you can't be neutral on a moving train. So just simply by sitting there, you are complicit. People need to stand up. Uh, You said that some Australian institutions had similar issues that they needed to grapple with. Can you speak specifically about any of the Australian museums and who they are receiving funding from? Um, No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I do know some really good folks who are working in Australian museums. And I do think that um, a a lot of the work that we've been doing lately is developing exhibitions inside mainstream natural history museums in collaboration with First Peoples. 
um, it's indigenous peoples around the world that are stewarding more than 80% of our biodiversity. Um, and it's through supporting their sovereignty that um, we're able to protect and safeguard our, our collective future. Do some of the oh, sorry, do some of the actions that you're taking in America um, does it attract negative political attention in any way? Just given the mood in the US at the moment, I'd imagine that what you're doing is kind of quite controversial. Um, I suppose one of the more controversial things recently has been urging the American Museum of Natural History in New York to drop Rebecca Mercer from its board. Um, she was on the Trump transition team and um, in that capacity proposed a number of science deniers and climate deniers to cabinet positions. And she is a top funder to the tune of tens of millions of dollars to climate denying organizations that say things like carbon emissions are good for you <laughs> and they lead to a more green and verdant planet. So it's a really kind of out there climate denial. Um, and, and I guess because she's um, so kind of tied into Breitbart.com or right-wing news piece in the Trump administration, um, that could be considered a political call to remove her from the board. We see it simply as, you know, having a climate denier in a leadership position at a science institution undermines the faith and trust the public place in your museum and in science more generally, right? Yeah. So that's too grave of a, a, a threat, too high, high of a price to pay. How do you see the role of art in climate change advocacy, which is one of the themes of this um, festival? What makes what you're doing different from a purely political protest? Like the boycott campaign here was simply a political protest. What, how does art help what you're doing? Well, some people say... Um politics are downstream of culture. I mean, I think it's a bi-directional thing, right? Culture and for, you can't have political change stick if the culture isn't behind it. The next, you know, the winds will change with the next administration. And so I think reaching people on a heart level, animating these concerns and making them feel the reality of climate change um, then can lead to action. That's why I think something like the Climate Art Festival is so important is, um, you know, moving beyond numbers and data to, um, to really communicate climate change as a social justice concern that's relevant to your day-to-day -day lives and to, you know, to your kids. Uh, the lecture tonight is entitled Slaying the Zombie Myth of Institutional Neutrality. It's on at Deacon Edge in Fed Square. I do think it's possibly booked out, but perhaps jump on the website and maybe there might be some tickets available. In, in, scalpers. Scalpers, that's right. <laughs> in any case, the Art Plus Climate Equals Change Festival is, there's lots of other events taking place that's running until the 19th of May. So if you can't come tonight, I'm sure there'll be something else you can go to. We've been talking to the artist and activist, Becca Economopoulos. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R. Sarah, I'm not going to be here on Friday because. No. No, it's my second last week, so I thought, why do. Day, why take do, a day off. Why do a full five days? Uh, no, I'm going up to Sydney for the Sydney Writers Festival. One of the nice things about going to a Writers Festival is they put you up in a nice hotel. Ooh, how, what level of fancy? You don't have to say the name of it. Uh. Well, in the past, the Sydney Writers said one of the nice things about it is right on the harbour. So it's just oh. like it's just in, so it's in a hotel just underneath the harbour bridge. And just, they, that is totally places you why, you don't stay on the harbour when you go to Sydney as no. it is as a visitor. You probably couldn't afford to as well. I always feel like when I go in there, you know, you go in to check in and I always feel like someone's going to put their hand on your shoulder and say, <laughs> you don't belong here. Get out of here. But um, so it's always, it's always, you know, one of the nice things about it. But I was just looking that, um, on one of my news stories here, one of the British tabloids has got a piece about a study done about the things that British people take from hotels. How's this? Oh. Apparently, UK holly, ho holiday makers steal over three million pounds of tea bags every year. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the most British so hard to be a cliche, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Shit. Um, Although, when you think about it, that's probably the easiest thing to take because you're allowed them and they're technically they're free. You can drink as many as you want. So, you can grabbing a handful of them before you go, no one's being harmed. Yes. Although one of the people who commented who commented for the piece did suggest that. Um, 
if you're that poor that you needed to be stealing cheap defects, you probably shouldn't be spending your money to stay in hotels that's in the, a very, first, that's a very the first place. I mean, they're just taking them for the road, though. You know how you do that? You go, oh. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Maybe they're just taking them out of spite. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they have a list. I mean, it's like all... Every time I read these British tabloids, I'm kind of astonished that... Um, there are real things because they never have They're any... probably not. They never really have any real news in them. But anyway, they've got a list of um, things that are most commonly stolen from British hotels. Gideon Bible? It's still coming in. Well, the Bible the, still... actually, that's number six is books, which is Bible slash other. But, oh, do they still have the Gideon Bible yeah, in every... They, well, I don't know in every, but yeah, they do. They, 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 they do. Um, How weird. And I suppose you're sort of supposed to take it. Isn't that the idea? Like, isn't it there to save your soul? The Bible? Oh, maybe. I mean, mean, you'd you'd be able to make that case, I think. But also, I think that one of the Ten Commandments might be, thou shall not steal. So you'd be in a pickle. Oh, jeez, that's a paradox. Is there a get out of jail clause if you steal Bibles? Yeah, but then you just go to confession, right? (laughs) Absolved. Uh, Okay, so the number one thing... Actually, do you want to... um, I mean, you did pretty well with Bibles because that's number six. Do you want to go for number one? Oh, yeah. This is like that game, Family Feud. Yeah. You know, break faster uh, feud. <laughs> we have two that, of us that aren't related. Actually, that's every show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so I've got to guess another one. Yeah. Uh, I reckon, um, so shower, like shower caps, shampoos and, and soaps. Actually, they're not. Oh, uh, well, they've got full-size toiletries is number two. I guess that's like shampoos and stuff. Yeah, I okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean that... Yeah. Full-size, though, not the mini ones, like specifically not... Well, that's so strange. It doesn't have the mini ones on it. So it's got um, number two full-size toiletries. Number one... Um, oh, so I thought one was the tea bags. No. No, no. Oh, it's actually, now that I look at it, it doesn't make much. That's just they steal a lot of tea bags. Okay, they steal a lot of tea, tea bags. bags. That's not number one. But these one. are the top ten. Hang uh, on, number one. Just let me guess. Towels? Towels. There you go. Yeah. I've always thought the towel is one step too far. Like that taking a towel is stealing, <laughs> is categorically stealing, as opposed to tea bags or those bottles, which you're going to use anyway. Yeah. Would you agree? Have you ever stolen a towel? Oh my god! Have you? What is, why is your face going like that? <laughs> oh no! Well, I took some of those little um the little face towels because so they're good for shaving. Are you serious? Yeah. I, they are like fifty cents at Dimmies. <laughs> well, some of the tea bags and the British still still three three million of them. No, when did you do this? What was it? A different time in your life? Or was this like last week? Oh my god, Jeff! <laughs> Look, it's the, I'm not the only one. They're the most popular. You're like you shouldn't be quitting your job. <laughs> Yeah, I can phone in for Why did you steal them? Because I thought I don't have any of these things and I just realised that like they're handy for when you shave. And you can also just buy them literally <laughs> well, anywhere and just steal them from a hotel. Because they were freely available. Oh, I don't know that they are. But what about this? This is the one that, that um oh my God. surprises me the most. Number three. Yes. Light bulbs. N- no. Who would steal a light bulb? There is so much effort involved in that. <laughs> Start screwing the phone. I'll be taking that things. Oh my god! And uh, also, like you've got to carry it around with you. Where you, you're, you're clearly travelling. Like, oh, this will come in handy. Fit <laughs> <laughs> light bulbs. Okay, so number four is oh. pillows and cushions, and you know I can kind of say often hotels, particularly good hotels, have very good pillows. Do you reckon? Okay, so if I, but I feel like if I stole a pillow from a hotel, I'll get a call saying where is the pillow. <laughs> Right? Well, that's true. I'm not sure how you, how you smuggle it out up your, I'm, I'm, up your jumper. Put on a bit of weight while I was in this hotel. Drank the whole minibar. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so. How, is there anything that's totally. No, it just, get, it just gets worse and worse. Okay, so we've done uh, pillows and cushions, dressing gowns. Yeah, I've, I reckon I'm more comfortable with a dressing gown than I am a um, face towel. And also, those sort of terry towel dressing gowns that they have, I mean, I would not. Wear one Gross. of those in Also, any... who's been wearing it? Oh, well, it's been washed, I suppose. Oh, yeah, true. Um, anyway, yeah, so then uh, uh, Bibles, we've already done. <laughs> then what about this one? Plants. <laughs> I mean, it's illusionist. It's like strip mining the place for anything that's not nailed down. I like that. <laughs> I'll be taking that as well. People are fucked. Three triple R. 
listening to Breakfasters. I'm back. Well, welcome, welcome back, me. Um, <laughs> welcome back, Cotter. Here I am. Uh, been a bit sick for the last couple of days. Um, still just, a bit sick, really. Still, yes. Sorry about that. TBH. Um, but I just feeling, apologise. But feeling you, much better. You pulled oh, yourself together. Mm. Uh, you know, got some cold and flu tablets, and here we are. Uh, but it's just having a cold, though. It's like. Oh man, geez, it knocks you. Yeah, it's no fun. But yeah, people are just a cold, but it really just becoming. It can be really terrible. Yes. Yeah. Like for that first day, like that Monday afternoon. By the time Kath got home from work, I was just on the couch and I'm just like looking at it just going. I just want to be better. I just want to be better. Oh. Like you know, when you get to that, so you're like yeah. how, how? Just how long is this going to last? Because you don't. Yeah, that's the thing. You don't know how long you're going to be like that. Yeah. And that's upsetting yeah. in itself. But can I just say that Kath has been amazing. Hey, this is Kat's forte, looking after sick people, I reckon. Oh, yeah, that, that's true. She wanted to train to be a nurse. Yeah. <laughs> literally. <laughs> Quite literally. Yeah. But it's just that, you know, that right amount of um, of sympathy and and just getting stuff. Like she made me chicken soup, like the oh. chicken broth soup. Oh, And it's just like, oh, it's so... You know when you see people go, have some chicken soup, I think... How am I going to get that chicken soup? Yeah. yeah. Yes, it he never seems realistic. Some... No. It's not like, you know, my Yiddish grandmother will bring it over. Totally. Like, yeah. like no one's providing me. Th- that is and just a proper chicken broth. Uh, yeah. You know, not the... one from the supermarket. Yeah. And it was just, oh, and then she's like, oh, I've frozen some. So it's there in the freezer. You just grab it out oh. as you need it. It's just like, it's so oh. nice. Because, you know, I, I think back to when, um, you know, when I was a kid and I'd stay at home from school yeah. for being sick. And so I know my mum cared a lot, but she didn't o- always show that she, there wasn't a lot of sympathy there. Well, I guess she had other she... kids too. Oh, yeah, busy. Just a lot, lot of stuff, stuff going, going on. on. Yeah, but do you think yeah. that she also didn't believe you sometimes? Like, yes. were you a, yeah. <laughs> yes. So how, 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 how often were you sick? Oh, no, I was sick a bit. <laughs> but sometimes. But also, yeah, it, it would take a while. Because you remember, there was that time that um, I had pneumonia and she didn't. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I've forgotten about that. Oh, yeah. So as a reminder, and for those that haven't heard this story, I was uh, like I was about 13 years old and I'd, I'd had this cold and we were going on a canoeing trip to Finlay. I was with the Girl Guides. I was in Girl Guides and we're going to have a weekend away canoeing on the Finlay Lake. And um, and the afternoon that we were leaving, I had to... Mum made me go around the corner to pick up, our, you know, my friend Shelley. She goes, you go around the corner, pick up Shelley and come back. And I just said, oh, Mum, I'm really sick. I don't think I can walk around the corner. <laughs> and she said, what are you... Don't be ridiculous. Go on, get going. Off you go. And then I got to the corner and just collapsed on the corner, just <laughs> crying <laughs> Someone's front lawn, and then I was like, "Oh, get in the bloody car!" And then you know we drove round, and then but here's it wasn't until like that Did was, you go on the trip. I can't yes, remember. went on the trip. Jesus, right? this is sorry. So it was just early in the morning. I had to walk around the corner, and so and then we drove to Finley that day, and I'm just in the bus, just going, "Oh, I just don't want to talk to anybody. Oh I feel my so God. ill." And then it was like, "I'll just get in the boat." And I'm canoeing around and I'm just, I'll just sit in the canoe and not kind of, I'll try not to get wet and stuff. And then they did this thing where you had to raft up. So you have to, all the canoes get in, uh, in line with each other. Yeah. So you're holding the whole row of canoes. And then you had to swap canoes. Oh, oh, my God. And I was just like, I just sat there with my head down. And I just thought, if I just stay really still and quiet, they might, won't make me do it. <laughs> but the problem was wearing this fluorescent pink Oh. And they were like, you in the pink hat. Come the pink hat. Go on, you have a go now. You have a go. And I was like, oh, no, I'm a bit sick. No, nah, come on, you can do it. And then it was just like I had to do it. So I did oh. it. And then by the time we, you know, it was a lunch break. And then by that stage I was just like, I am, I'm dying. This is the worst. Wow. I, you know. And so eventually they went, oh, yeah, we better take it down to the doctors. <laughs> and because it was in Finlay, this is this country hospital, so they they get there like, oh, actually the doctor's off playing golf at the moment. Oh, my God. Um, but, yeah, we'll call him in. And then the doctor came in, and they all thought I had asthma because I just wasn't breathing properly. Yeah. And they were like, oh, you know, oh, she's probably got asthma, blah, blah, blah. And the doctor came in and just listened, you know, to my chest and was like, oh, no, she ain't got asthma. She's got pneumonia. Oh. And then... And were they all 
sympathetic. Were they all no, sorry? Like, did really? They, like... they weren't sorry. <laughs> oh, mum, I, I guess, was like, oh, yeah, righty then. Uh, and then I just had to go and stay at this woman's house. Like, because um, it wasn't bad enough that I had to be hospital. They just, like, gave me some antibiotics and, and stuff and sent me on my way. And mum was like, oh, well, I've still got to be at the you know, the canoeing weekend, so... And then I just went and Your mum had to be there? Yeah, because mum was one of the oh. leaders, you know. She was one of the guardians and stuff on the, on the camp, so she needed to be there. And then so I just stayed at this this woman's house. She was actually the badge secretary for the Finlay Girl Guides. Did you oh. know her? No. Oh, my God. <laughs> just, horrible. Just, I mean, she was very lovely and accommodating. But, but and that's so, at that age, that is so weird and uncomfortable, though. Oh, mate. But I was too oh. sick to care. Like, <laughs> this, is terrible, this is a terrible story. Unbelievably <laughs> sick. Just, I remember, like, just lying on, on the couch, like, with the bucket, just, like, and being so... Like watching stuff on TV that I didn't was not interested in at all, but not having any energy to pick up the remote oh, and change yeah. the channel oh, yeah. was just like you know. Because I feel like, like at least if it happened now, you'd have the satisfaction of being able to go around to everyone and say, "I told you so." Oh yeah, I had a yeah. bit of that. There was yeah. a bit of that. I feel yeah. so vindicated. Yeah, when I got diagnosed <laughs> I told with pneumonia. You I was yeah, <laughs> I think yeah, there was a bit of that to you know mum and dad afterwards that was like mm-hmm. you saying you made me walk around the corner and then did you milk it next time you didn't want to do something at school like you they're, yeah. they're not gonna like call you out for it again so you just pretend to be sick they have to believe like, you I, I got like a week off school which was great and then uh and then I was back at school it had been like a two weeks later or something and it was uh, I remember I was ha- having trouble breathing again and I just thought, oh, I've got this, this ammonia's come back. This is what's happening here. And I remember, like, walking from one classroom to another and just not being able to breathe properly and just went, oh, no, nah, I've got to go home. And then so I went, uh, you know, got mum was called in and she came to pick me up and she took me straight to the, to the doctors because I was like, I think I've got this, you know, my pneumonia back. And then she, they took me to the doctors and they were like, no, you ain't got pneumonia, you've got asthma. So the pneumonia brought the, asthma. Brought the asthma around. Oh, so that's no. when I was diagnosed with asthma, um, oh. like two weeks after I had pneumonia. And how's this, like, like the night before, because I'd, I'd been wheezing, but I didn't know what wheezing was. Like I just thought yeah. that I had, like, this tickle in my throat and was coughing and stuff. Yeah, you've never wheezed. There's no... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I was just like, oh, I don't... So I was, like, it, you know, I don't know what time, in the middle of the night, I was going through like the medical medicine tub and just pulling out like cough syrup and drinking that <laughs> and finding just whatever I could to try and relieve this, you know, tickle in my throat, this wheezing. Um, and then it just obviously just got worse during the, the next day. And then so when I got home from the doctor's, and Dad was there, and we're like, "Oh, Dad, yeah, I've got, I've got asthma." And Dad just goes, "Oh, yeah, I could have told you that last night. You were wheezing all night." <laughs> Three triple. Ah. You know, I went to Perth on the weekend last weekend. Yes, just there doing some gigs. Uh, they have a new. Um, Venue like this, this the Perth Comedy Lounge, um, which is just a dedicated comedy venue, um, which is very nice. But also, it means um, that they can have multiple shows on. It's a big scene there. Yeah, it's pretty good actually. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of good comics that have come out of Perth, um, and some that are, are, are still there. Uh, but they have. Um, they have a six o'clock show, then they had an eight o'clock show, and then at ten o'clock they had a drag show. Oh, oh my gosh! You, were you in heaven? Yeah, I was having the best time. <laughs> and then, but before I left, they, you know, I got an email saying, "Oh, hey, they would do a drag show at ten o'clock. Would you be interested in hosting that?" And I was like, "Oh." To be honest, I didn't want to, to begin with, because yeah. like, I just want to watch. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And I was just like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll do it, you know. Um, anyway, so did that, and it was – and they were at 10 o'clock at night. Half the audience had already – leftovers from the earlier comedy show. Yeah. And then there's a whole bunch of new people in there as well. But everyone was, you know, having the best time. Like, it was a really, really great fun show. Um, and during the break, 
of the drag show. I was sitting up the back with one of the other comics and this this guy comes up to us and he is larger than life. You know those people that oh, are just yeah. like, hey, you go, oh, my, you are so funny. And then he was talking to the other guy, you, you're great. And he's just really kind of saying actual words but in that, intense. you know, really intense. And then he said, look at you, oh, oh, man, you're like different down here. Like you're up, up on stage, you're very blah, and then here you're just like, oh. And <laughs> this guy, Brett, was just like, Oh no, mate! Just meeting new people. Like yeah. I'm just, you I'm know, just a human, and yeah. you're saying really loud words at me. Yeah, exactly. And he was like, oh, oh, oh. and then he kind of just went, oh, anyway, guys. Oh. And and you had off. a few. Oh, heaps. All right, yeah. <laughs> heaps. Um, and I said to, and we just Brett and I kind of looked at each other. And we we're just like, wow, <laughs> that was okay. He goes, yeah. He goes, I really liked it. Brett's re- response, though. Like, the, no, just meeting new people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I'm, like, oh, I'm going to save that. That's yeah, that, that, is, is. that is a good little put it in your yeah. pocket. Because you must get that so often as well. Yes. Yeah. Just that intense kind of, ugh. Yeah. I always wonder what they what they expect for you. What they expect. What the response is they expect. Like, yeah. a, like that you're kind of a clown, maybe. I guess so. You know. I guess, you know, they see a, a certain thing on stage. A version want, of you. Yeah. Yeah. And they want more of that and they want to be a part of that. Yeah. Anyway, later, uh, finished the show and then later um, was outside because all the, show, the show's finished and the kind of bar kind of closes so everyone leaves. So there's a big group of people outside and I went out and I walked down the road a bit to, to get away from everybody to get an Uber and then so I clicked on the Uber and then realised that I'd just put in the address like I thought I'd put in the address of where I was standing, but it was like the pin was back. Ah, uh, bum. At the, yeah. So I was like, oh, so I had to. <laughs> it was fine. Though. I had to walk back, and then um, but walk past this guy, um, and he's sitting outside with some, and he's like, he's put his arms out for a hug, and he's going, oh. come on, give me some sort of affection, anything, touch. And I was just like, oh, and I went to give him a high five. Yeah. And then um, he kind of pulled away and was just like, oh, you're a man. And, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> which, yeah, which I'm sure he was just trying to, to reference a joke that I had made earlier. Yeah. Um, but it made everyone around him go, oh. And there was another guy who I kind of walked past and this guy went, are you, oh, Crap, are you, are you all right? And I'm like, oh, mate, he's 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 just a he's just a drunk wanker, and oh, his friends no, will sort really him out. Setting for me, oh, mate. Oh, it's you know, honestly, I was fine. Yeah, it was just yeah, like yeah, I was yeah. just like he's he's just a drunk wanker, and his friends will sort him out. And this guy goes, I am one of his friends. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, oh. I go, oh, okay. And he goes, I'm so sorry. And he goes, to be honest, I actually only met him four hours ago, but I'm within the same group. And he said. Um, I'm really sorry, but he started, he was chatting to me. He said, "Oh, hey, great show tonight. Really loved it. I didn't catch you in Melbourne." Um, blah blah blah. Uh, and he just went. Actually, I'm really, really sorry for not reacting differently to when that guy oh. said something to you. I'm like, "Oh no, I'm I'm fine." He goes, "Oh, I just I really, I really wish I had done something. I'm really sorry." I'm like, oh, "I'm absolutely fine." And nice. then I had to go and yeah, get in the. And then my Uber was there, so I left. And I honestly didn't think much much more of it. Yeah. But how's this? The next morning I get an email. I don't know how no. this guy gets my email, but it doesn't matter. And he writes, um, he just wrote, hi, hi, Geraldine. Uh, first thing I want to say, you did a great set at the comedy. I'll, I'll just put this in just for the, all the listeners. <laughs> You are the best comedian yeah. in Australia. Yes, that's what, exactly what it says. <laughs> uh, you know, great set last night. Couldn't get tickets to your show in Melbourne. I'm glad I caught you in Perth. Uh, he said, I was the person on the street before you got in Uber last night. Um, uh, and I, I wish I was more with it to react uh, at the time. Um, yeah. So just cutting stuff out. Yeah. Um, on, on failing that moment, uh, I've taken your – his friends will sort him out comment and acted upon it. I'm sorry that I can't make it better for you, but I've made sure that his closer friends can't ignore this and don't accept it happening again. So then he sends me screenshots. Oh, my God. This is – I can't believe this. It's, it's amazing. Uh, of a text message that he'd sent um, – 
to the, the mutual friend, you know, just said, hey, can you pass this on to this guy? Um, he goes, hi. Uh, it's the friend of a friend of a friend, the group, you know, came last night. Listen, I'm calling you out for being a pure dickhead and running the end, ruining the end of the night regardless if you remember it or not. You insulted Geraldine Hickey on the street after her show by loudly calling her something. I don't think he said man. I think I think he just said it's uh oh yeah so Lely calling her a man as you were carried off you ruined you ruined my night so I can't even imagine what you did to her so you deserved more you should be better than that at a minimum I'd suggest an unreserved apology to her and a commitment first time or not to change no reasons and no excuses to make yourself feel better if she wants a reason she'll ask and and kind of a bit more but I read that and was just like oh no, it's making me want to cry oh, it's pretty great isn't it yeah. But it, but at the same at the same time, I'm like, oh no, I don't, I don't want to have an interaction with this I don't guy. Want to talk to the other guy ever again. <laughs> but then I was like, actually, no, that's that's absolutely what, like that's, that is just an extraordinary response, isn't it? Isn't it? It's amazing. And then I'm so uh, happy he did that. Oh, mate, yeah, same, absolutely. Uh, and then, so then later I got a, a message because he suggested, he goes, you know, he said, I suggest you can, she's on social media, um, contact her through there or you can email the, the comedy lounge. Um, and I, I got a, a message off my Instagram later that night from from the guy that, that said it and he hey. was like, um, he goes, I saw you perform last night at the comedy lounge and came back uh, to the drag show later on. My friend Wes told me um, this morning that I had said something unforgivable to you. This is my unreserved apology to you. Uh, I care deeply about hurting you, and if you are in any pain, please know that I am also suffering. Please contact me if you would like any further explanation or to vent. I'm really, am so dreadfully ashamed. I love your art. I wish you the best. Isn't I don't, what, I, a, I, what, what a new world what we're living you, in? I cannot believe that. That's just that. This makes me so. That is such a. Piece of joy Isn't in a, it? at a shitty time. I Isn't can't it? believe that. And I and so I, and then I had to think a lot about how, how to, to respond. respond. Yeah, to that because it's like you don't. I don't didn't want to be too. Oh, you're all right, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it wasn't. You know it that kind of behaviour right. yeah. isn't all right, and it shouldn't be. Um, you know. And I, you know, I, I kind of just, you know, and I didn't want to say, like, basically I just said, uh, I said, I'm all right. I thoroughly appreciate your apology, though. Uh, I said, you called me a man, and I'm sure you were just referencing a joke I'd done in the show, but it didn't quite land. Uh, and then I was like, I can tell you're, like, I wanted to say, you know, I can tell you're a nice guy, but they're all bloody nice guys. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, I can tell you're a genuine guy, um, and I think Boo's got the better of you. Feel better tomorrow. That's a that's a really nice. That's a very generous response from you. Generous response from you. I think that's so, but nice. also it's he's already. You no, know. no, he's felt shit and he's been called out and he's done the right thing. So I think yeah. it's, you don't have to make him feel more shit. But I think that's a really nice response from you. Yeah, welcome to the new world. Yeah. Oh, Jess, thanks for that's made me so happy. This well, is not where I thought this story was going today. Happy Fridays, oh. everybody. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from Three Triple R. 